You can see the new trailer for You Are Now Less Dumb, my second book, over at youarenotsosmart.com. I hope you go there and check it out. We put a lot of effort into it. I really like it, and it's so cool. It's all about placebo buttons and the post-hoc fallacy. You can also find it at the uh, YouTube channel for You Are Not So Smart. You can find more great podcasts like the one you're about to listen to at boingboing.net, and you can find You Are Not So Smart on Twitter at NotSmartBlog, or you can find me at David McRaney. And if you send a cookie recipe to David at youarenotsosmart.com and I bake that cookie and eat it on the air, I will send you a signed copy of You Are Now Less Dumb. Also, if you go to Facebook, each week I post who the guest is going to be on the next episode and you can ask them questions. And then I will take those questions and ask them of the guest in the show. And oh yeah, the intro music. That's Clash by Caravan Palace. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, Episode Fourteen. Hi, my name is Funkmaster V. I'm a professional wrestler and musician, and my opinion means nothing. But I would like to say, because I've been watching videos all night of people saying how they were crying and, and just thought it was just an emotional, wonderful feat, uh, the lost season finale, I'd just like to say that I thought it was a big pile of crap. And for anybody out there who thought it was good, God bless you. This is America. That's why I love this country. We can... You can look at a piece of poop on the side of the road that your dog just let out of its rear end, and we can all just sit there, and you can think it's wonderful because it came from your cute dog. And there's people like me who will sit there and look at poop and say, that's a big pile of poop. And the date, May 23rd, 2010. And this is one of thousands of videos that trickled into YouTube describing the hatred, the ire, the the sickening feeling that came over so many people who have been following a television show called Lost for six seasons. And they followed that show right into a finale that for many people was just sort of crushing. Anybody to think after season three or four that this thing was headed in a good direction, you're crazy. I really felt like the wheels were falling off the bus. And we were kind of watching, it's kind of like watching your, your kids do a school play and you're kind of liking it because your kids involved and you enjoy the characters, enjoy the people participating, but the writing was God awful. Many people shared uh, Funkmaster V's sentiments on this matter around the time because you see lost is one of those shows. It it had wonderful characters, incredible writing. And it was basically the the concentrated version of the cliffhanger, except as an entire show. Instead of it being, hey, what's going to happen next on the next episode? It was every second of the show was a cliffhanger. And when you do something like that, people expect a payoff. And for many people, the payoff of Lost, well, it just didn't meet expectations. 
I want the last six years of my life back. They answered no questions. What questions did they answer? They didn't answer anything. They just created more questions and then decided not to answer them. If you haven't watched Lost, don't bother. It's shit. Uh, I stayed up all night for that. To measure my level of disappointment and anger, you might as well have just come into my house when I was asleep and pissed on us. It probably would have brought us to the same sort of level of confusion, anger, and disappointment. So what yeah, I could play time 500 of those in a row, and they pretty much are all the same. And remember though, these, these were recorded right as people walked away from the show. And what happened afterward was also sort of an interesting phenomenon where lots of people came around and said, no, 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 uh, it wasn't bad. It was very good. And people started sort of going through some sort of process where they made themselves feel like it was worth all the effort to go through all of this. And mind you, for many people, it was, and many people love Lost. There are plenty more Lost tribute videos uh, on the internet than there are people bashing it. But there also are a whole lot of videos out there that try to explain what Lost was, like this one. If you've never seen Lost but you'd like to know what it was all about, or you have seen Lost but you still don't know what it was all about, I'm going to explain it to you with post-it notes. Okay, this is an island, and in the center of the island is a light. We're told that this is the source of a light that exists inside everybody, representing all of human goodness, and if the light Nearly goes out on the island, Nearly 16 million people, people watched Lost through the first season, and 10 million of those stuck around to the end. And a lot of those people needed a video like this one to say, hey, here's what just happened. And you have to ask yourself, how can millions of people watch a show week to week for years and sometimes build their day around watching that show, spend maybe days binge watching a show to catch up on it and still not quite understand what it is that they're doing. And that's the power of a narrative. That's the power of strong characters in a make-believe world doing fictional things with other fictional people. Nothing else is like this. And now, with the new form that television has taken, you can have this long story arc taking characters years to complete. And you will you will hang on. You will cling to those stories like we have clung to stories the in. The entire time we've been on this planet, telling them to one another. If you thought that this abridged version of the show was particularly interesting, I would really recommend that you go back and watch the whole six seasons, because for me, Lost is a show that isn't about the story, it's about how the story is told. There are 121 episodes of Lost, 121 hours of appointment television, or about 90 hours of television without the commercials, so... 90 hours of life. And that's a large investment for something completely fictional, something completely imaginary. Taking breaks only to eat and sleep, it would take you about six days to watch it straight through. Or if you look at it this way, you can earn a bachelor's degree in about 120 classroom hours. Or if you already have one, you can earn a master's degree in about 30. So 30 hours is three seasons of Game of Thrones. So yeah, it is about how the story is told. Think of it like this. According to Nielsen, the average citizen of the United States watches 34 hours of television a week. That's about 73 full days of television per year. A person alive today, on average, will have watched between 9 to 12 full years of television by age 65. 
And that's just television, not movies, not novels or comics or video games or stage plays or any of the other forms of fiction that we all find ourselves lost within from time to time. I am not saying that television is bad. I'm not saying that television is a waste of your time. Far from it, because I love all of these shows, too. I spent 60 hours with the characters of The Wire, um, 62 with the characters of Breaking Bad. So far, 92 with Don Draper and the other Mad Men. But what I am saying is that these narratives obviously have a powerful effect over our behaviors to send us into these trance states for nine years or more over a lifetime. And what I want to know is that is what does science have to say about all of that? Like a great painter doesn't have to know anything about the retina or electromagnetic waves or the brain to create great works of art. And a great storyteller doesn't have to know this scientific explanation as to why We both prefer to receive and send information in story format, but there is a scientific answer. And that is what we're going to talk about today on the You Are Not So Smart podcast. My name is David McGrady. I will be your host on each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. We explore another topic in the realm of self-delusion, and then we interview an expert on that topic before eating a cookie. This episode is about narratives, and the expert is Melanie Green, who researches the power of narratives to persuade us, as well as just the general concept of the narrative and how it is expressed and received by the human mind, how it affects the human mind, how it affects belief and behavior. And what I love about this topic is that, you know, narratives, stories, fiction, all those things are a big part of the human experience, yet we don't ever really think about them as something that science could explain or understand. But once you take that scientific step back and you see human beings as animals and you see the human brain as an organ, a collection of atoms and molecules, and realize that the mind is something that the brain generates and you really take that objective step back, then you also have to take an objective step back and say, okay, imagine that I was an alien creature who flew to this planet and watched a bunch of people sitting in a movie theater. Would I understand what they're doing? If I saw somebody sitting with a book and, uh, and they were reading it and I learned that they, that the book was 100% just something made up by another person, just total fiction. Uh, a story about wizards, you know, or a story about, uh, you know, uh, a painting that helps a person stay young forever. Would that even make sense to another kind of mind? Do you have to have a human mind to understand narrative? So what are some things that science does understand about storytelling and narrative from a scientific standpoint? What do we know? Well, probably the most interesting thing, at least to me, is the fact that we have a storytelling module in our brains. Now, of course, we don't actually have a module in our brains that is devoted to storytelling, but, um, we do have a variety of structures and effects that come out of uh, the brain that might as well be considered a storytelling module. It's just useful to look at it that way. So now, like anything whatsoever concerning neuroscience, we know very, 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 very little about what we've discovered concerning the storytelling module, but that's exciting. Um, most of what we know about the brain is uh, is kind of like thinking about what you might know about a mountain after knocking some snow off of a single branch growing from a tree that's coming out of the side of that mountain. So um, that's sort of about how much we know about the brain in various areas because we just know the very tiniest amount about what's going on in there from what we've observed. And our, our methods and techniques aren't quite there yet. But one day, 
One day, many of these things will be very explainable. But that being said, the left brain interpreter is a term uh, describing the way in which the left hemisphere of the brain seems to rationalize whatever is coming in through the senses and construct a story out of it. Now, Michael Gazziniga is the scientist who is most often credited for discovering this left brain interpreter in split-brained patients. So these are people who have had their corpus callosum partially severed, um, and the result is that the left and right hemispheres can't communicate. So the left hemisphere, which sort of speaks for the entire organism, doesn't have access to what the left eye can see since the that information goes into the right hemisphere. You know how they're crossed. So... If you show a person who has undergone a procedure like this, something like terrible scenes of people being injured, but you only show that to the left eye and therefore it only goes into the right hemisphere, then that person, as they start feeling uneasy, you can see the left brain interpreter in action by asking this person why they feel that way. And the person will say something like, I, I had something bad for lunch or um, I'm nervous about an upcoming test or that uh, I feel like I'm getting a cold. Since since the left brain interpreter does not have access to the real reason that the body is feeling uneasy, it doesn't have access to what the right hemisphere is up to, then um, the side of the brain that speaks for the whole person just makes something up. And the amazing thing about this left brain interpreter is that it's always there. It's always in your brain and in my brain and everyone, whether or not you have a severed corpus callosum, and it's always making up a story to make sense of all the information you are receiving from the outside world. And it does this mostly in story format. Some speculate that it provides like a cohesion. It brings together your personal story so that you can feel like a unified self with a past and a present and a future. And you can see this in a variety of brain injuries. Uh, people who have all sorts of strange effects um, going on in their, in their mind uh, when the left brain interpreter takes a look at this bizarre information coming in, it will come up with a story to explain why that is happening. And if you, you can see these on YouTube, but you can also, uh, if you've ever experienced it for yourself, it's a, it's a fascinating moment when someone's coming out of surgery. Uh, a lot of times it's surgery on their teeth. Um, you can see a person coming out of that fog of painkillers, trying to make sense of what they're feeling and seeing and thinking and you can see that left brain interpreter start to spin a story about what's going on. You can experience it in yourself when you have insano dreams that you try to connect into stories. It's just part of being a person. And I think what's great about all this is that it lines up well with the work of Joseph Campbell. If you've yet to listen to lectures by Joseph Campbell or have yet to read his books, go out and do that very soon. It lines up well with what we know about the left brain interpreter. Campbell was a mythologist and his work showed that so many of the stories that people pass down through the generations in every culture, those stories keep returning to the same themes. And he put forth the idea of a monomyth that when you boil every story down to its most basic elements, that it, it's always the same story. Everything from Star Wars to Tom Sawyer to Pride and Prejudice to Grand Theft Auto V, they're all variations on a single mythological story structure. And this is a structure you would learn in a, like a script writing class or a creative writing course. It's called The Hero's Journey. And you've probably heard of this. It's You take a, a well-developed character that people can identify with. And this character yearns for something bigger than his or herself. and Or they have a character flaw that they really need to work out. And this person then answers a call to action. They go into a world that is new and strange and amazing and challenging. And then they face and overcome many tasks that require the character to grow as a person and change. And then 
some last bit of their former selves or something from the world they left uh, behind to go on this journey almost keeps them from accomplishing a final task. And just when all hope is lost, the hero overcomes that challenge and returns to the world from which they came. A very different person. Um, the person that struck out on into this new world is a lot different than the person who comes back. And that is uh, sort of the story that we tell ourselves over and over again in different ways. We're very compelled to create and also consume that story. And I think my speculation, I, uh, I think that it's probably very likely that the left brain interpreter is trying to always spin that story about yourself in your own life. And that's why the two line up so well. And that's why you see it across so many cultures. When you burrow all the way down into the foundations of the human mind, I think that hero's tale is something that is created by the left brain interpreter. That's just my own speculation. I'm not a scientist. But that's why I want to talk to scientists about this sort of stuff, like Melanie Green, who is our guest today. She is a professor of psychology at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and she studies narratives. She, uh, specifically, she studies the power of narrative to change beliefs and the, the effect that fictional stories have over our attitudes, the way that fiction can change the way we feel about things in the real world. She has a theory called the transportation into narrative worlds theory, and it focuses on how people immerse, get immersed in the, the, uh, the narrative and how narratives influence you and, and cause you to sort of disappear into their stories. She has edited two books on this topic, narrative impact and persuasion, psychological insights and perspectives. And she's, uh, she's published many different articles. She is a leading researcher in the power of narrative to affect the human mind. And right now, we're going to pick her brain. All right, Melanie Green, I'm so happy to have you on the show. Uh, you research storytelling, you research narrative, and your research suggests that narratives exert really powerful influence over us, over our minds. When we say minds, we're talking about beliefs and behaviors. So from your perspective, from your expertise, um, what does your research have to say about how narratives exert influence over our minds? <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, that's exactly right. We see narratives everywhere. We listen to narratives. We tell narratives. And so it's a little bit surprising that there had been a bit of a neglect of people looking at how exactly that works. And now it's it's become a bit more of a, a booming area. But what my research suggests about how narratives work is that at least one aspect of it is the fact that we get so immersed in narratives. And in my research, we've called this being transported into a narrative world. And the idea there is that we're mentally engaged, our cognitions engaged, our emotions come to bear on this. We might have mental imagery if we're watching something or if we're imagining it from a text. And so you get all of these different mental systems working together to create this narrative world. And because we have this, this in-depth and this vivid experience that we take the information from the stories and bring it into the real world with us. So we learn from um, what happens to the characters in the stories and that can change the way we think and do things. Now, you uh, took part in editing a, a, a sort of a textbook on this called Narrative Impact. Uh -huh. um, and in that book, they um, 
you write about how, and uh, your fellow editors write about how, this is different from advertising. This is different from propaganda or uh, speeches or campaigns. And uh, how how is the way you perceive narrative to be different from those sorts of uh, storytelling techniques? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the kinds of things that we were really drawing a contrast with there were the kinds of messages that we get where there's a list of arguments as to why you should do something. So here are five reasons that you should vote for my candidate, or here are five um, statements about why my product's the best. So these kind of very um, straightforward or non-story-like persuasive messages. And there's a ton of, of great research coming out of um, social psychology for really decades and decades uh, about how those messages work. And a lot of that research focuses on the idea that what makes the difference in those kind of persuasive messages is how much we're thinking about the message. So if we're not thinking about it or elaborating on it much, we could be persuaded by sort of surface features of it, like is there an attractive spokesmodel? If we're thinking or elaborating on it a lot, then we get persuaded by the central arguments. And is this person saying something that makes me respond with positive thoughts that I think it'll be a benefit to me? Um, And this is the basis of, of things like the elaboration likelihood model and other models. And where the, the research that, that we've done and that narratives comes in is that this kind of critical thinking, this elaboration, is just not what happens when we read stories. That's not how we approach stories. We step into them. We don't stand back from them and kind of analyze them in that more critical way. Yeah, I, it, you know, what's weird about stories, I think, is that since they are so ubiquitous, they're everywhere, you know, books, magazines, uh, movies, television shows, and it's really, it's a huge part of being a human being. And mm-hmm. whenever we create a new technology, storytelling flows into that technology and starts using that. Um, with Even today, with maybe story t- stories that are told through apps or told through video games or whatever. But um, the power for that to affect our behavior in our minds, I think is, it's odd to me that psychology would have taken so long to get to it. You, um, in the book, you say rhetoric rather than poetics has been the focus of scientific study when it comes to persuasion. Um, what do you think it is that we've um, saved storytelling for so long? Uh, we've saved it for almost for last when it comes to considering persuasion. Yeah, that's a great question. And I should note that there are areas of research um, from communication in particular that was looking at stories in in some ways, too, with things like um, how we use entertainment for education and things like that. But why did we leave it for last? I think part of it comes from um, the methodological approach that social psychologists use and that and we like experiments we like things to be tightly controlled and so when you have a list of arguments you have pretty good control over making sure that everyone's mm. going to you know see those in the same way and stories are a little bit messier you have details and you have characters and and you have all of this stuff going on so i think some of it is that it's just a little bit more challenging of of a kind of stimulus to use in an experiment And I think the other reason is maybe a little bit more subtle is that um, 
because stories themselves have often been seen as something that's in the domain of the humanities, so literature, these other kinds of fields, there was maybe a sense that, oh, that's sort of not a scientific kind of thing. That's not our, our playground to play in, which when you think about it hard, doesn't make a lot of sense. But I, I think that may have been part of the resistance too, that that didn't feel like a, a social science topic. <laughs> right. Which is because it's weird to me because I think about like, um, I mean, this is how we mostly talk to one another. We, you know, we tell each other stories and we, I mean, billions of dollars are spent in Hollywood to generate stories and we are, it's, it's a big part of the human experience and it seems, um, it so falls under the umbrella of scientific investigation. Um, so let's dig in a little bit to some of the stuff that you actually researched. What are, what are your, are some of the ways that you've seen that stories affect our beliefs and our behaviors? Well, so um, we've seen the effects of stories on our beliefs and behaviors in a variety of different domains. So um, they can change our beliefs and behaviors about health topics. So using stories to do things like help encourage people to quit smoking. Um, and researchers like Jennifer Escalas have done studies looking at them in advertisements and, and they can shift our attitudes about consumer products. Um, one of the areas that I think is most exciting is because narratives are fundamentally about characters and relationships, one area that I think they have particular promise, and there's there's evidence as well, in shifting people's attitudes toward other groups in society. So attitudes about other racial or ethnic groups, um, those kinds of intergroup interaction kinds of things. Narratives are good at helping us step into somebody else's shoes. And so it can evoke our empathy and that can, can be used in some pro-social ways in terms of reducing intergroup um, negative opinions and so on. Now, you mentioned you mentioned it earlier, and you use this phrase a lot in your research of uh, transportation being tra- mm-hmm. being transported into the narrative world. Could you unpack what that means? Sure, sure. So, what we mean by that is. Experientially, I think this is something that that most or all of us have probably had the feeling of where you get so immersed in a good book that the world that's actually around you really just falls away and fades away. Um, So the example that I always use is that, um, you know, you're up reading your an exciting mystery novel and it's two in the morning and your your spouse or roommate comes into the room behind you and you don't even notice it until they're right there. And then you (laughs) jump out of your skin because you sort of mentally you weren't there. You were in the world of the story. And so it's this kind of engagement that we're talking about. And so what that involves is it involves the cognition of of thinking about and simulating the events that are going on in the story. It typically involves emotionally responding. So sympathizing with the characters or identifying with them, you know, reacting to the events that happen. And then um, mental imagery of having these images or um, visual pictures of the kinds of scenes that are taking place there. So it's all of that kind of stuff going on together. It makes me wonder if, you know, if, if this is just, if this is something that is unique to the way the human mind works, uh, to the way the, the, uh, mammalian brain is, uh, constructed and that in storytelling, maybe just sort of, a our reaction to it is a byproduct of the way that we're built to perceive the world. Um, do you know of any research into like maybe how, 
this came to be our default method of communication? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's some there's some interesting ideas about that, and I think all of them are, you know, maybe super, a little bit ste- speculative because it kind of reaches back. Yeah, but um, one that I think has a lot of promise is the idea that. Um, being involved in, in stories is kind of mentally simulating events and other areas where we do that are kind of remembering the past and thinking about the future and being able to remember and learn from the past and being able to project into the future and imagine different ways that events might unfold are really adaptive in a survival kind of sense that if you can predict to some extent what's going to happen that that can really help and so there's some suggestion that narrative is sort of a, a little, maybe a, a more sophisticated way of using these kind of simulation abilities that developed along with this kind of cognitive complexity of remembering and projecting. Um, so I think that's one one thing that's um, that's a sort of promising explanation for for why we like the for why we like stories. One that's kind of related to that. Um, that maybe doesn't go back quite as far evolutionarily, but um, this is a, a theory that was proposed by Lisa Sunshine, who's actually a, a literature scholar. And what she says is that one reason why narratives might be so engaging and fun for us is because it's an opportunity to practice our skills at theory of mind. Mm. And what theory of mind means is it's simply this idea that I know that I'm a person and I have my perspective on a world on the world and you're a separate person and you have your own perspective that's not the same as mine. Um, but it's very advantageous for social life if I can try to figure out what your perspective is, you know, what you're thinking and what you're going to do. And so what stories do is they give us a means to sort of practice those skills in a context where there's not going to be bad consequences. You know, if I'm trying to predict your behavior in the real world and I'm wrong, then, you know, that could make a social interaction go downhill pretty quickly. But if I do it in a story and I'm wrong, then, you know, I find out that I'm wrong and I learn something from it, but there's no negative consequence. So I think that's sort of a, a really interesting idea that it helps us hone our social skills. And there's there's some empirical data that backs that up as well, that narratives can help um, increase our social skills. I like that. I like, I like that because um, when we first met, we discussed, uh, it was right around the time that Breaking Bad was uh, coming to its conclusion. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and I was... What I what I love about the idea of a show like that, or any kind of story that has a strong anti-hero, is that uh, in Breaking Bad, Walter White is is sort of a despicable person and gets more despicable over time. But you are still compelled to to uh, pull for this character and, and follow them to the to the end of their story because, um, and this is just my my uh, you know layperson theory is that you're um, you are you are identifying with that character's struggle. Uh, in within a context that if you think to yourself, okay, what if I was in that same uh, situation as him? Would I be um, struggling in that same way? And how would I do it differently? And it seems to me that um, a lot of what makes storytelling compelling is uh, our characters and how we relate to those characters. Is, or is there, uh, what sort of research, uh, what have you seen in your research that has to do with character? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think characters are really central to a lot of this kind of work. So um, 
there's a lot of research in addition to, to research on transportation of sort of being stepping into this narrative world. There's also a lot of work on identification where you specifically put yourself in the place of the character. And in the research literature, identification is one of those terms that's, that people have used a bunch of different ways. So some people thinking it's liking the character or sympathizing or thinking that you really are the character. But I think a commonality across all of those things is that when people connect with a character, that's a really important pathway that the narrative influence can happen. Um, and again, I think I think we see this most clearly perhaps in these studies of stories of people who are in a different social group or, or racial or ethnic group than the reader, that people come to really sympathize often with those characters and that that's something that can sort of generalize out to other members of the group. Um, so that, yeah, I think that's definitely an important part of narrative impact. You, you talk about, uh, when, you, we talk, when you talk about transportation uh, in your research, you bring up that it can um, be very powerful in belief change. Um, and one of the ways you mentioned that it, that it can do that is that it reduces counter-arguing. Could you sort of explain how that works? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. So counter-arguing is a term that means um, kind of what it sounds like. And if you think about if we see an advertisement, say the prototypical one for a used car or something like that, our, our knee jerk or default response is often to think of reasons why we shouldn't believe that. Like, oh, they're pro- probably not telling the truth about that or that's wrong because of this. We come up with arguments against the message. And one of the um, neat things about stories, um, perhaps for better or worse, depending on the content of the story, is that that tendency that's often evoked by a a very straightforward or non-narrative persuasive message is really seems to be reduced in terms of narratives. And there's a few reasons why that happens. So one of these is happens when we first encounter a message. Um, Stories are something that people typically find interesting, they enjoy, they seek out. And so if you think about trying to deliver a health message, for instance, if you do it in a more standard way, people might kind of throw up their hands and say, don't preach at me. I'm, I'm tired of this. You know, that they just don't want to engage with the message. But a story, it's like, oh, hey, let me hear what happened to somebody else. That's a more appealing way to get people into a message. And then once people have gotten into this narrative world, it seems like there's a couple things that could be going on there. So one traces back to this this enjoyment idea is that if you're along for the ride, you're enjoying this story, you're having the pleasure of that experience, you're not really very motivated to step out of it and start arguing with the story. You know, which is not to say that it never happens, right? I think many of us have had the experience where you're watching a movie and then something just utterly implausible happens, um, right? I have a friend who's a physicist who has this problem with watching science fiction movies. and like, no, wait a second, that's not right. right. So it can happen, but we're sort of motivated not to have it happen because we want to just keep rolling and enjoying the story. And then second piece of it is that to counter-argue takes mental energy. It takes cognitive capacity. And if we've got all our cognitive capacities engaged in this mental simulation and imagining the story, we may be just sort of less able to come up with counter-arguments, especially because in many cases, we don't think that stories are going to be persuasive. We don't sit down in front of a sitcom and go, ooh, I'm worried about what beliefs this is going to show me. It just kind of sneaks in the back door, so to speak. Yeah, but it's... I mean, we. So this is another one of those things where you know, we live in that 
we swim in that sea and we don't notice that we're wet. So like the, but stories definitely have greatly impacted individuals, psychology and the psychology and social movements throughout the entire entirety of human history. You've got, <laughs> absolutely. Um, you talk, uh, you think about how the, the societal impact of a movie like, uh, Philadelphia that really changed people's attitude toward AIDS. Um, you write about in the in the, um, in the book about uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin and how that mm-hmm. greatly affected uh, people's opinion about things. Um, you know, I know that like when something happens in someone's personal life, um, like uh, you know, Dick Cheney ha- has a um, a homosexual member of his family, and that changes his op- opinion on homosexual marriage. Or and but whenever that you don't have that in your personal life, sometimes, uh, or oftentimes a compelling, well-made story can put you in the place of those characters and give you a special kind of empathy that you wouldn't be able to gain any other way. Um, is that sort of what you're saying in, 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 in the, what happens when you get transported effectively? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think it, it sort of shows us a different side of things. It's it's good at capturing the human side of things. And so often that that can evoke empathy and, and these other kind of positive responses. What are some um, not to say it always does. Narratives are not always used for good purposes, no. but that's the that's the kind I prefer to focus on. But yeah. So lo- along those lines, are do you see that there are some stories that seem to be universal to all human cultures? Oh, goodness. That's a great question. Um, so certainly there are things like um, Campbell's Hero with a Thousand Faces and, and others have written about this, that there seem to be certain very prototypical stories, you know, the, the struggle and the triumph of the hero and these kinds of things. Um, there also is cultural variation across, uh, you know, of, of sort of what what kinds of things people expect in stories, you know, like how much do people expect things to be neatly wrapped up in an ending or um, just different cultural patterns that get reflected in stories. So I think my kind of take home on it is that um, there are some things that that do seem to be relatively universal with with broad kind of story structures, but then variation within it. (laughs) Probably the story of just about everything, but applies to narratives as well. (laughs) Um, And certainly every culture, you know, what's universal is that all cultures generate stories and generate mythologies that that we live by and um that in itself is what's uh, so amazing about being able to research this stuff and i think oftentimes we don't realize that some of our um some of the stories that we share are actually a shared mythology and they're not you know the true story you mentioned in your in your book things like um christopher columbus <laughs> um could you sort of unpack the 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 nature of how that kind of story gets embellished and, and why we do such things. Mm-hmm. Right. So with that kind of thing, um, you know, to some extent, a, a little bit like the, the game of telephone, as stories sort of get told and retold and, and shaped in a society, they, t- they often tend to converge on something that, that makes a better story structure, even if it's not something that's as clear a reflection of what actually happens. And I think some of that is, is what kinds of needs people want the story to meet. Other times it can be, um, 
you know, intentional people intentionally manipulating or sharing stories in a certain way to achieve particular goals in society. Um, so I think there are a variety of ways that 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 can happen. That stories can get simplified and and reduced and removed um, in order to make a better story, but a better story that may be further from reality. But it, you know, it's, what's great about what's fascinating to me about the Christopher Columbus story and maybe like the story of Thanksgiving and, and many of the other stories that we have in the United States is that we don't really have a shared mythology and so we sort of have invented one on the fly with the, the founding fathers and uh, all the stories that we learn in school that when you get older you realize oh wait a whole lot of that was completely made up <laughs> and uh, it seems like um, it speaks to a compulsion that we that we if we are without a shared mythology to cohese us that we will generate one is that is that an accurate estimation or am i just uh, going way off the deep end there no i mean you know that's a little bit outside the the bounds of what i study but but that that rings true to me that this is something that is a you know kind of a powerful glue for holding groups together and societies together and so um yes if it's not there people are going to generate it okay um so I want to get to some um, questions that came from uh, people on Facebook. Before, before that, there was uh, there was this one line uh, I saw in in your research that really stuck out to me, and I thought that was just so interesting. I wanted to ask you about it. Was um, the does the storytelling ability of a particular individual, like if they're really great at storytelling, does that tend to change the way other people respond to him or her? It does. Um, this is this is some relatively research, recent research that that we've been doing in my lab, and um, and I'm very excited about. It. So it's it seems to change things in two ways. So one that that we found recently, and this um, hasn't been published yet, but it's the idea that if people use stories rather than other forms of information in interpersonal interaction and the kind of scenario that we've used is if somebody asks you for advice on something um, and then you can respond back either with a story or with maybe some statistics and facts that if you use a story that increases perceptions of somebody as being sort of warm and friendly. Um, whereas if you use statistics and facts, that increases perceptions of competence. So they seem to, to draw on these different domains of person perception, um, which is kind of a neat thing. And so it's not just what you say, it's how you say it um, can make a difference there. That's, fasc so that's fascinating. Because I, th I think we all have someone in our friend group or our family who is, you know, you're like, that's the that's the one who really is great at telling stories. And you want to gather around that person and have them talk about something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And then the other um, thing that we've found in our lab is that if people are if they're the ones that are good at telling the stories, what that seems to do is increase perceptions that either that person is of higher status in a group or that they have the potential to achieve higher status, that that sort of makes people be perceived as leaders or potential leaders or people who are going to succeed. Oh, wow. um, and so, yeah, it's really interesting that that, that seems to happen. Hmm. Um, Cause you, you know, I can remember when I was a, a child, I would, um, there's a restaurant in my hometown, really small town. And um, I don't remember the man's name. I would have to ask my parents, but I remember that he would sit down in the restaurant and, Every, no one would be eating. They just have coffee and they would all be around this one guy telling stories about, I don't know what, but I remember very vividly that um, 
he was a beloved character and and if he walked in the door people were like oh yeah okay i came on the right day because this guy's going to tell us something about uh his childhood or he's going to tell us something about uh what happened to him last week and he was um i would like to think that there that sort of stuff is still happening out there somewhere that is very cool yeah absolutely we we love those great storytellers um, okay, let's get these questions. Uh, these are all <laughs> incredible questions. And I'm just going to start with this one. Uh, this comes from John Padilla, and he asks, uh, this might be an obvious question, but has she come across specific narratives which have a higher conversion rate? Um, and he supposes that perhaps maybe there would be religious texts, um, but he would, he's interested in things like stories that uh, get passed around like A Christmas Carol. Um, are there, so are there uh, specific narratives that you know of that have a higher chance of converting uh, the listener? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is a great question. And um, I can answer it a little bit on sort of a, a really general level. And that's the idea that stories that um, are better able to transport us are going to be more effective. And that seems to come down to, and, and this is not a, perhaps a particularly surprising answer, but but narrative quality in various ways. So is the plot coherent? Are the characters engaging? If it's a video narrative, are the production values good? So all of these kinds of things that, that play into it being a good story also tend to relate to it being a more effective story. And then... Um, there's, there's some neat research on things like um, urban legends or more recently on what goes viral, these kinds of things. Um, and it's interesting that the emotion seems to be really key to that process. So things that um, that tap into emotion, it's just these sort of activating emotions that makes us want to share. So things that surprise us or make us angry or make us excited, that makes us want to pass along these kinds of things, you know, be it an urban legend or a you know video on Facebook or these kinds of things. Um, I also think just a, kind of a third answer is that it goes back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier, that sometimes these things that tap into really fundamental human concerns or story structures. I mean, like with the Christmas Carol, this redemption story that Scrooge can come back from being mean and, and, you know, see the light. This is a really powerful type of narrative. And so I think things that tap into those, those kinds of stories that, that we share as a society can be powerful um, as well. Awesome. Um, thank you, John. That was really cool. And uh, this comes from Anthony Vinson. Uh, Anthony's question is, uh, how should we train people, in, in his mind, especially children, to be aware of persuasive narratives that might be used by marketers and politicians in the popular culture? Uh, how can we best prepare a person to with, withstand belief change? That is a fantastic question. <laughs> the sixty-four thousand dollar question, um, and it's it's actually it's more difficult than you might think. So there's research in my lab where we've tried to do things like. Let me take a step back. So we've had the consistent finding in my work that it doesn't really matter whether you tell somebody that a story's fact or fiction. People seem to be transported into it. They're persuaded by both of them. Um, People think that it should matter, but when it comes to the effects on people, it seems generally not to. 
and what we d- did in one of our studies was we tried to push this a little bit farther and say, hey, you know, it's this isn't fiction. This is somebody that made this up to lie to you. you know, this is fake. Mm. To see if that would be enough to get people to not be affected by the story. And the funny thing is, is that people were like, oh, they were mad. Like, this author shouldn't be lying to us. But yet they were still showing some some attitudinal effects of reading the story. Um, and so that was really surprising that even when people were sort of upset and didn't want to be persuaded, they still sometimes seem to be. Um, and Beth Marsh, who's a psychologist at Duke University, has done a, a series of studies um, where they've tried to get people to not gain misinformation from stories with things like slowing down, warning people that there's going to be misinformation. Um, And it takes a lot. It takes a lot to get people to to not fall for this. And so I think some of it may be, um, you know, a little bit of awareness of having the time to step back from the story and think about, you know, bringing in those those critical parts of our mind that might not be typically active during reading the story, stepping back and and analyzing it. Okay, what information was that implying? Where does that come from? Does that resonate with other things that I know, other facts that I can find in the world? Um, and the tricky thing about that is that we may not always have the time to do that. We may not always have the the resources, either mental or kind of. Uh, informational, you know, can we find out about these things? Um, so I think, you know, sort of awareness and media literacy kinds of things can, can do some of it, but I think it's an, especially it's, it's a big, it's a big challenge with narratives as to how to create that resistance, Mm. an important challenge. I love that. Well, you know, what's great about all these questions is that, you know, this is, this research is very new. We're just sort of, we just now are starting to like really get our claws into it. So I, I, I love the idea of being on the forefront of something like that. Yeah, exactly. It's exciting, <laughs> but it does mean there are some unanswered questions. Absolutely. Sure. Um, and one more question. This is really neat. Uh, this comes from J.A. Callahan. Can the same narrative hold a different amount of power if told by one person compared to another? That is a um, great question. And I think this is also one where that's a a great area where research needs to to go a little further and find that out. Um, One answer that comes to mind is that people's preconceptions about the person who's telling the story can matter. So uh, and political polarization is the example here is if a politician that you like tells a particular story, you might be going, yeah, that's exactly right. Whereas if the guy or guy or woman across the aisle is telling that same story, you might be ready to pounce on it and and pick holes in it. So um, certainly from that perspective, I think who tells the story is going to matter a lot if you have a pre uh, going into it, you have you have ideas about whether you're going to agree with that or not, um, and I think it also can hook back into these narrative quality issues where, again, some people just have sort of a, a gift for telling stories compellingly, or they have amazing voices, or things like that. Um, I suspect that matters too. Right. Well, you know, we could go on and on about this because I love hearing about it, and um, this is just some of the most fascinating areas of uh, psychology right now, but um, I have to say goodbye at some point. So what I want to do though is, is uh, give people an opportunity to keep up with what you're doing. So if somebody wanted to find you on the internet, how would they do that? 
Yes, um, you can type my name into into Google, and uh, I'm at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I can um, give you the web address to. Shall I say it right now, or do oh, you? Oh yeah, go for it. Okay, um, actually, I have to pull it up and make sure I'm getting it right. Um, but my Twitter handle is at Nairprof, so N A R R P R O F. So they can find me on Twitter, and they can find me on the web at. I should have this off the top of my head, but um, it's www.unc.edu slash and then the tilde MC Green. All right. And they and, can keep up with me there. And so what are you working on right now? What's the, what, what does the future hold? Well, we're working on a couple exciting things right now. One of them is to try to extend this research out to look at not just what happens when we get involved with one story, but how do we manage the situation when we have several different stories that are all dealing with the same topic and how do we choose or integrate the information from those. Uh, and another thing that we're looking at is how narratives change when they become interactive. So what happens when people can start having control over where the plot goes? So I think those are two um, exciting directions for looking at these questions. That is so cool. Um, thank you so much for coming on. And I, I, uh, I look forward to seeing what all uh, you're going to produce in your research. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much. It was it was great fun to be here. Not So Smart Podcast is part of the Boing Boing family of podcasts. And you can find more of those podcasts by just going to Google and typing in Boing Boing Podcasts, or you can go to boingboing.net and find the podcast button and then click on it. And one of the other podcasts that I think you should check out is one that just was added to the family. It's called Sword and Laser, and it's a great podcast that is put together by Veronica Belmont and Tom Merritt, and they have a book club. They have a video version of the show and they also have a podcast and it's about sci-fi and fantasy stuff, but, you know, really getting into the, the meat and potatoes of sci-fi and fantasy and talking about many of the different themes within that genre. You should really check it out. It's one of the great podcasts over at boingboing.net. Now what starts with the letter C? Cookie starts with C. Let's think of other things that starts with C. Uh, ah, who cares about other things? On each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, I read a piece of self-delusion news or a scientific study right after I eat a cookie baked from a recipe sent in by a listener or reader. You can send your recipes to david at youarenotsosmart.com, and if I pick and bake and eat your recipe, you get a signed copy of You Are Now Less Dumb, my new book that you can go get right now, or you can earn through a fantastic cookie recipe. I also post the recipe and the winner and the photos and everything else at youarenotsosmart.com as well as the You Are Not So Smart Pinterest page. This week we're going to try out a cookie sent in by Elliot Jones of Columbia, Maryland called Chocolate Orange Cherry Cookies. And immediately uh, when I saw this recipe, I was like, okay, something weird's here because it has orange extract in it. Semi-sweet chocolate chips, dried cherries, vanilla extract, and then the other stuff you expect to be in a cookie, sugar and butter and eggs and that sort of stuff. So it comes out to look like a little little um, brownie-ish chocolate cookie. Very dark. But you can see bits of cherry poking out in every direction. 
and I'm going to try it right now. So let's give it a shot. Hmm. Indeed, sir. Yes. Good to meet you. I don't mind if I bite. Hmm. Twice. Oh boy. Inhale heaven. Exhale ambrosia. Wow, that is fantastic. So what's going on here is it's sort of it's sort of like a cherry cordial. Oh man. It's sort of a brownie on the inside, crunchy cookie on the outside, with the overall um, experience of a cherry cordial, the taste of a cherry cordial, except in cookie form. And there are actual cherries in it. It's it's pretty beautiful, I'm going to say the truth. I'm going to tell you the truth right now. No more lies. This is beautiful. I am beautiful. If only for a moment. Oh, wow. That is good. So good, I put the rest of the cookie in my mouth just now and I'm chewing it because I don't care what happens except this cookie must be part of me. Mmm. It's sort of a... Um, if, if fruitcake didn't suck... I think this is what people intend what they what they intended to do when they when they invented fruitcake was give something like this to the world. And in a way, fruitcake is sort of um, an experiment gone wrong. And I think this was the original idea. This is what the inventors of the fruitcake, of the modern fruitcake, they were like, we're gonna give the world something glorious, something that will change lives, something that will take someone who is right on the edge and bring them back from the edge. But instead they, they invented something that pushes people all the way over the edge. This is, these, these cookies say, I, I believe Elliot Jones is telling me through these chocolate orange cherry cookies, don't just step away from the edge. Turn around, get on your motorcycle, put on your shades, lace up your chaps, and ride. Ride, son. There's life. There's life worth living out there. Oh, wow. Thank you very much, Elliot Jones of Columbia, Maryland, for uh, definitely changing my life, if not just for the last few minutes, for the foreseeable future, because I'm going to continue making and eating those cookies. Thank you so much. All right, so let's talk a little bit about self-delusion, shall we? This self-delusion news comes from the Sydney Morning Herald from December 11th, 2013. The headline is, Taking photos interferes with memory, colon study. In other words, a study says that taking photos interferes with memory. And it was written by Sarah Napton. Um, what's great about this story is it is about uh, new research into the psychology of photography, the psychology of what happens whenever we take photos and we look at those photos and we amass a giant collection of photos. And this is something that is being researched more and more often in the world of psychology because we're taking more photos than we ever have in the entire history of having photos. Um, around the end of 2011, several articles came out saying that, and I, I found this at photo.net, that 10% of all the photos that have ever been taken by human beings took were taken between 2010 and 2011. Um, and of course, we're taking more photos than that now. Uh, so I'm sure those statistics have uh, changed a little bit, but you get the idea. Like most of the photos that we're taking, are, we're taking with our smartphones because we're taking more and more of them than we ever have. 
and it's cheap and easy to do and you can go back through and you can take a hundred photos at a party and delete 90 of them and still feel okay about taking all those photos and you used to not be able to do that and um you know in the past most photos were of families of babies of vacations and now we take photos of our food and we and that's okay it's really cool i think it's great that we have the ability to do this but obviously it's going to affect our psychology it's going to affect our behavior our thoughts our feelings our emotions and our memories so this study written about in the um sydney morning herald was conducted by dr linda hinkle from fairfield university in connecticut and she has discovered something that she calls the photo taking impairment effect which she says whenever you take a photo during a moment that you would like to remember the photo drastically alters the memory that you create both in the moment and then later on whenever you uh, you think about that moment without the photo to ping your memory. So what she did is she had subjects visit a museum and either take photos, one group took photos, or just look at the exhibits and actively try to commit those exhibits to memory. So there were two groups. One took photos, one did not. And she discovered that afterward, the people who uh, had not taken photos were better able to recall details about what they had seen in the museum than people who had taken photos if you took those photos away. But in subsequent studies, she found that um, if you were if you took photos and you were able to interact with those photos after you took them, they did help you to better reconstruct the scene and to relive the moments that you were in when you took those photos. So the takeaway is that according to Hinkle, and uh, this is explained in the article by Sarah Napton, that uh, according to Hinkle, the current research suggests that mental snapshots are better than photos if you can't get back to those photos. Um, and if you don't have the photos around to help you recall what you experienced, then it's better that you just don't take them at all. But if you do have photos around, they really, really help you recall and they help you relive what you've seen, what you did when you were taking those photos. Uh, but those memories are totally different from a memory before we had those photos, before we had the giant amount of, uh, of uh, recollective power that we have now. So there are two real big takeaways for me here. Um, two big lessons. One is if you are going to take lots of photos, you need to take care of them and take care to preserve and protect and back them up. And the other big takeaway is if you're in a moment and you're thinking that this is a special thing that I want to remember, and you're thinking about taking out a camera or a smartphone to photograph it, ask yourself, am I going to look at these photos later? And if you're, if you don't think you're going to, then it's best to, to not take photographs because it will corrupt the memory that you could have had. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. I want to send out a special thank you to David Bernard, who helped teach me how to master these episodes so that they don't sound so muddy and, uh, and bassy. And he really made the podcast sound like a real podcast, uh, like I've been trying to do forever. And um, he did all of that just out of the kindness of his heart. It was very, very cool of him. We talked to each other over Twitter, and then we moved it over to, uh, to email. And you can find him on Twitter at DR Barnard, D R B R B A R N A R D. Um, and he makes apps, and he's a really cool person, and I want to thank him so, 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 so much. 
Go to youarenotsosmart.com to find links to everything that we talked about in today's episode, merchandise, learn about my books, watch the videos, read Survivorship Bias, which is an article I wrote that was just named by Pocket as one of the best long reads of 2013.